Oh yeah. So we've had a few things going on. And one of the challenges is I, I was in Mexico and then uh, did man up camp out with my son and all this other stuff. I've had two weeks to think about what I wanted to tell you today, which is never a good thing, all right? Because I have a lot to say today, all right? Here's part of the problem. I took so long starting Philippians that now I've only got today and two more Sundays to finish it up. So we've got to get done with chapter three today, all right? Whoa. This is not a good start, all right? So, here's the deal. Philippians is as much about joy as it is about anything else, right? He, Paul starts the book out talking about this joy idea, and in each chapter so far, he's given us a different concept about joy. For example, in the first chapter, Paul told us that our circumstances don't have to steal our joy, but our circumstances can steal our... All right, you've got to warm up here with me, all right? Right? Our circumstances can steal our joy. How many of you have ever had your circumstances steal your joy? It's all right. Raise your hands. Let's see. Let's see. Right? Yes. Our circumstances can steal our joy. And what Paul's saying is, no, we don't want our circumstances. We need to live our, in, with our circumstances in such a way that it doesn't steal our joy. Right? So then he goes to the next chapter and he basically says this. People can steal our joy. How many of you ever had people steal your joy? What a bunch of mean people, right? I mean, people... And so this is what Paul's talking about. In chapter 3, he really opens up. He says, here's the deal. Things can steal our joy. Things. How many of you have ever had a thing steal your joy? Driving the car, suddenly the brakes need replaced, and you think... <sighs> the dishwasher breaks and you need to replace the dishwasher and you think <sighs> you move into a house and there's stuff to do and the thing steals your joy right how many of you have ever had a thing steal your joy now that i've given you some examples oh more hands go up yes yes and so chapter three breaks down into these sections and really tells us that things can steal joy and it's easy to get wrapped up into things it just is and, and we can talk about tangible things like money and possessions and, and our looks and things like that, but it's also easy to get wrapped up in intangible things like our reputation and like something like our fame and our achievement. These things can, we can get wrapped up in. So Paul warns the Christians in Philippi to be cautious about being wrapped up in these tangible and in these intangible things because they can steal our joy right and so really chapter three breaks down into three sections and the first section is this paul wants us to know that you know what he's discovered some new values with jesus and so he counts these new values as something that that's worth something not these old values he, he's kind of leaving the behind the past behind and he's trying to move forward right and so then he talks about this he says now we have to live in the present and there is a way to live in the present the way we live in the present is we press on in the present we, we press on. And then at the end of this chapter, he's going to say, but there's something that we look forward to. There's something that's coming that we look forward to. And so Paul wants us to know that quantity, quantity does not assure quality. How many of you have heard that before? All right? I accidentally bought something on Amazon this week, and Sarah thought I bought 12 of them. I only bought six, but I only needed one. All right? And I'm like, here's the deal, babe. You're taken good care of now for at least 15 years. <laughs> right? 
quality. Quantity does not assure quality. And so Paul wants us to count. He says, I want you to count. Well, what does it mean? Count one, two, three, four, five. No, the word count really means to examine and to assess our lives. He wants us to sit down and he wants us to seriously evaluate what values control our decisions and our directions. That's what he wants us to do. Paul understood what is still true today and was true then that many people are slave to things. And those things can steal our joy. Have you ever been slave to a thing? Right? Some tools, yeah, depending, you know. And so here's, here's the big idea. Paul, Paul lived a life that was commendable. I mean, he was following Jesus, and, and he lived a righteous life, and he, he, he lived an obedient life, and, and he followed the law, and he stood for the religion of his fathers. But none of those things satisfied him or gave him acceptance with God. And this is what he's talking about in the first part of that chapter. He's saying, I could stand and give you my resume and I can tell you my education. I could tell you the things I've accomplished. I can tell you where I've been and I can tell you what I've done. And I can tell you how I defended this and I defended that and I stood for this. But what he realized is none of that guaranteed him a place in heaven. That all of that was his own righteousness his self-righteousness, but what he needed was the righteousness of God. And so he, he wants us to hear that we, he had enough morality, he had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. And it was not a bad thing that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was all these really good things. He had to lose his religion so that he could find salvation. And sometimes that's what you have to do. And so Paul has given us his spiritual past, but now what he wants to do is he wants to encourage us of how to live in the present. Here's what I've realized. I preached this first service. I didn't say this. So you guys get the cleaned up version, all right? Or the not so cleaned up version. You be the judge. Here's what I've realized. In our culture and in our society, if I think something, we immediately jump to label me fill in the blank. You know, if I think this, then I must be, you know, if, if Mike thinks this, then Mike must be, right? And we're doing this so fast, so quick, that, that we end up really pigeonholing people into extremes as opposed to living where I think Paul's encouraging us to live. And so here's what happens, right? I get some comments after first service. Well, you know, you're a little hard on how to live. And, and so if I'm hard on how to live, I must be all about works, right? And, and if, I, if I'm too hard on that, then I must not believe in grace. Here's what I want you to understand. What Paul does to us is Paul doesn't care about either of those. Paul's saying, here's the deal. Here's, here's where I want us to be. Here's how I want us to live. This is what I want us to accomplish. And what I want to do today is I want to do the very best I can to help us understand what Paul's really telling us. And Paul liked to use metaphors in his illustrations. For example, he, he would talk about the Christian life and he would use the military to describe the Christian life. 
right? He might use architecture to describe the Christian life. We talked a few weeks ago about how he uses agriculture to describe the Christian life, and what we realized for sure is that there's not many farmers in this crowd. But what he does today is he's really going to use athletics as the metaphor for the Christian life. So look at this, Philippians chapter 3 with me, verse 12, it says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So right there, he already gives us a clear definition. The definition is this. I'm not doing this because you want me to do this. And I'm not doing this because some law told me to do this. And I'm not doing this because I stand on the religion of my forefathers. I'm I'm doing this because he, meaning Jesus, has made me his own. And since I belong to him, I'm doing this. Oh, and by the way, I've not obtained this yet. Well, what's this, this, this it that he's talking about? Look, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do is I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, if, and if in anything you think otherwise... Listen, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So have I messed with you already? Right? right. So what's Paul talking about? What's he, what's he dealing with here? What's this race? What is this prize? What is all this stuff? And I needed to understand something. Paul is speaking to Christians. Right? And he kind of gives this idea of running a race, that there's a prize to be won, and there's this finish line, this whole idea. Here's the deal. What he's referring to is probably Greek Olympics, the first Olympics. And to participate in the Greek Olympics, you had to be... What? <laughs> Greek is what I was going to say, all right? But close, all right? And, and naked. <laughs> but we won't go there. That was another sermon for another day. Terry's a smart guy, see? So here's the deal. You had to be Greek. You didn't run in the Olympics to become a Greek. You were already Greek. You were already a citizen. So we don't run the race to become a citizen. He's speaking to people who are already citizens, and he's saying, listen, there is a race now to be run. There's a race to participate in. We have the responsibility to run this race, to achieve these goals that God has set up for us. This is the continuation of let him who began a good work in you bring it to completion, chapter 1. Chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that you have been, you're his, now that you are a believer, a follower, a disciple, a Christian, now that you are this, there is a race to be run. There is a lane that you have to run in and there is a calling that you have in your life to fulfill. Does it make sense so far? And so when we talk about these things, running this race, living this Christian life the way that Jesus wanted us to live it, it's not so that we can earn our stripes and our medals It's because we're already in that we run and we run hard. That's the whole point of what Paul's trying to tell us. And so for each Christian to be on the track, to run in their lane, which is to fulfill a goal that's been set before us, how many of us want to win that race? I hope you do. 
I hope you're here. If you're not, we should talk afterwards for sure. I'll be at the Mountain View and Five area. All right? But there's a race to be run. There's a track that we get to run on. There's a lane that God's given us, and we want to run that race and finish the goal, and I want to win. And so I believe what Paul's doing in Philippians 3 is he's given us some essentials to win this race. Look at this. Philippians 3, verse 12 again says this, Not that I have already obtained this, Right out of the gate, he gives us the first essential to win this race, right? Not that I've already obtained all this, he says. This is a great statement that a Christian should always use. What's Paul saying? Well, this is a great statement of a Christian who never permits themselves to be satisfied with their own spiritual achievements. That's what he's saying. I've not earned it. I don't deserve it. I can't do this on my own. I can't complete this by myself. I, I can't do it. And so there, one of the essentials to win the race in the Christian life, this Christian life, is dissatisfaction. It's dissatisfaction. Paul was satisfied with Jesus, but Paul was never satisfied with his Christian life. I want to be satisfied with Jesus, but I, I want to always be challenged in my Christian life. How do we get satisfied? Well, we usually get satisfied when we compare my running to my neighbor's running. And as long as I'm a little bit further ahead of him, then guess what? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Like, I mean, I compare my life to a lot of your lives, right? Great. And you can compare your life to my life and feel pretty good. Well, this is what Paul's saying. That's not what we compare ourselves to. There should be a level of dissatisfaction. If, if Paul had compared himself to others, he could, he could have been proud. But he's saying, I'm not proud. He could, have, he could have let up the pace some because he was a pace setter. He could have been tempted to slow down or even quit or even say, you know what, I'm going to stop here for a while and let everybody else catch up. Right? Who likes to run with people like that? Hashtag Nobody. In Revelation, Jesus told John, here, write to the seven churches. Write to the seven churches. To Sardis, he said this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you've stopped running. In other words, he says, you're dead. You're dead. Somehow you feel like you've accomplished it, that you've already finished, that you're good to go, that you don't have to do it. Right? That's what he says. To the church of Laodicea, he says, You say I am rich. You say I have prospered. You say I, had, I have need for nothing. Not realizing that actually you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, Jesus has some harsh words sometimes for those of us who already are citizens. Don't misunderstand that. Already citizens who choose not to run the race. Who aren't serious about running the race. See, the honest Christian evaluates themselves and we always strain to do better. We always do. Self-evaluation is good for us, but it can also be dangerous because some of us have the personality that we self-evaluate ourselves. We say, oh, look, I'm better than I thought I was. On the other hand, there's people who say and sit down and self-evaluate themselves and say, oh, I'm worse than I thought I was. Here's the problem. That can only happen when we start measuring ourselves up to other people. Who do we measure ourselves up against? Jesus, who ran the race beautifully and perfectly with excellence and determination, he ran the race. Philippians 3 says this, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Here's the next essential. But one thing 
one thing I do. This one thing concept is an important phrase in the Christian life. One thing, it refers to devotion, commitment. Devotion is the word that I've picked there. How many of you have ever seen the old movie called City Slickers? It was my grandpa's favorite movie. I think I was 12 when it came out, all right? And so it's an old movie about these three guys who decide to go on a cattle drive, right? They're city folks, and they don't know how to ride a horse. They don't know how to rope a cattle. They have no business being on the cattle drive, but they're going out there to find themselves, right, to discover who they are. And there's an old, old cowboy named Curly. And this is about the only thing I really remember of the movie, that and the ice cream guys. All right, anyway. Curly, Curly was having a conversation with the city slickers, and he says, well, I'm trying to find the meaning of life. And Curly says, well, that's it. And he says, your finger? <laughs> no, it's one thing. One thing. Now, we never find out in the movie what the one thing is, or do we? But this is what happens. This one thing is a critical phrase in the Bible. Look at this, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Remember this, the rich young ruler? You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. See what Jesus did? He said, you're, you're missing one thing. Luke chapter 10, verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but, what's it say? One thing is necessary. Mary cho- has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. John chapter 9, we have the, we have the blind guy, right, who is healed He was blind from birth and he was healed. How was he healed? Think about this. Dirt and Jesus' spit. All right? Seriously, this is what healed this guy. You think Jesus was creative? He was creative. Hey, you know what? I think today I'm just going to make some mud out of my own spit. Put it on the guy's eyes. And this guy, he goes back to town and people are like, that can't be him. No way. They didn't even recognize him. This is what it said. He answered, because they're questioning, well, Jesus, is he a sinner? Is the guy who healed you, did he do it? He, he says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. One thing. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The Christian experiences progress when we are devoted to the goal, the one thing, the goal. Too many Christians are involved in too many things sometimes, right? And Paul's giving us the secret of progress. It is to concentrate. It's to think about. It is to set our eyes on. It is to fix our heart upon one thing. One thing. The athlete cannot succeed by doing everything. The athlete wins by specializing in one thing. And all of us have to decide. This race, this Christian life that we've been called to live, what is going to be the one thing that I'm going to live for, that I'm going to fix my eyes upon, that I'm going to be devoted to? What is that one thing? There can only be one thing. What's your one thing? 
Next is this, Philippians 3, verse 13. We're still in the same verse, I know. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. See, the the non-Christian is controlled by the past. And the Christian runs the race and looks towards the future, looks forward toward the future, forward. This is the essential to win the race, and it's all about our direction. Which direction are we running Which direction are we going? And by the way, when Paul uses the word forget, Paul understands that what he's asking us to do is not totally forget because it would take a lot of therapy and a lot of treatment and a lot of other things to make us totally forget everything behind us, right? 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 How many of us have something in our past that we're kind of embarrassed about? How many of us have something in our past that we really don't want anybody to know? How many of us have done something that we definitely never want our kids to find out about? Right? Right? And so this is the deal. Paul's like, I get it, I get it, I get it. But forgetting in the Bible means no longer be influenced by it or affected by it. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, forgetting what's behind. I want you to leave behind these things because I don't want them to affect you or influence you anymore and it's difficult to forget the past right but paul understands we can't forget but what he's challenging us to do is to not be influenced to not be affected by our past paul wants us to break the power of the past so that we can live in the future we cannot change the past but we can change the meaning of the past the christian has to keep their eyes forward on the future. The reality is this. Too many Christians are shackled by regrets of the past, disappointments of the past, and pain from the past. And too many Christians are trying to run the race shackled to the past looking back. Have you ever watched runners run a track race looking at the people behind them? Google it. It's quite hilarious. Do you know what happens? They fall. They run into walls. They trip off the track. What would you just say? And they take down the people around them. Guys, this is reality. This is what Paul's saying. When you're shackled to the past and you keep looking behind you, you're going to mess everything up trying to run forward. You're, you're going you're gonna to be too consumed back there that you're going to run into something. You're going to fall off the track. You're going you're gonna to lose control. And you might take a bunch of people around you down too. And so Paul's saying, we got to leave that behind. Don't be influenced by that anymore. Don't be affected by that anymore. Press on. Press on. Go forward. Keep your eyes looking ahead if you're going to run this race. That's what Paul's saying. I mean, could you imagine the quarterback of a team? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. Never mind. Use that in a second. Not only are we distracted by our bad past, but we're also distracted by the successes of the past. Did you know this? Like, like well, you remember back when, when we used to fill in the blank? Well, I remember a time when... Well, what are you doing when you're doing that? Where are you looking? You're looking back. And this is what's, this is what's really funny. Is sometimes I can sit in a room with, with a group of people, and some of them are talking about the past, 
And they're talking about the past. But they're not talking about the past. They're talking about the past. Why are you talking about the past? You shouldn't be talking about the past. We're all looking at the back, right? We're all looking back. And if we're looking back, where are we not looking? Everybody got this one? All right. You want me to keep going? (laughs) All right, we'll do that. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, this phrase, press on, is intended to carry the idea of an intense endeavor. A hunter eagerly pursuing its prey. We win not by watching the race. We win by joining the race and being determined to win the race. And so one of the essentials that we need in this Christian life, in this running the race idea, is we need determination. Determination in the Christian life requires us to live in the tension between I must do it all and God must do it all. All right? Have you ever heard the phrase, let go and let God? All right? I'm not going to ask if you've used it because I'm getting ready to make fun of it. All right? And I don't mean to, well, yeah, I guess I do. All right? This whole idea of let go and let God, it's like watching football season and seeing the quarterback say, here, guys, come here, gather up, gather up. Okay, men, let's just let go and let coach do it all. He can win it. Right? How's that going to work? It's not going to work, right? And it also doesn't work when the quarterback says, all right, guys, gather up, listen to me. Forget what coach says, let's do it my way. How does that work? It doesn't work. And so when we use this phrase sometimes, we'll just let go and let God in phrases like it, what we're really saying is, here, here's the deal. I, I'm really okay going up into the spectator stand and letting other people run the race. You know why we say things like let go and let God? Because we sing the song, right? When God works in me, He works through me. This was a few weeks ago, so this was a little memory test, right? God works in me so that he can work through me. You know what the in me work is like? It's new wine. We sang it. Press me, Lord. Crush me, Lord. Right? There's pressing and there's crushing. And really, truly, we prefer to say, I'm just going to let go and let God. Because I'm not really interested in the crushing and the pressing. I'd prefer to, I'm okay watching Terry be crushed and pressed. I'm good with that. And his wife Barbara, you know, she can be crushed and pressed, but I'm really okay letting go and letting God. Does that make sense? There's a race to run. And there's a lane to run in. And there's a goal to achieve. There is. And sometimes it means that God does some things in me so that He can do them through me. The Christian puts all their effort in reaching the goal. What is the goal? What's the prize? What's the prize? It's the high upward calling of God in Jesus. And the faithful believer is going to be crowned just like the athlete is rewarded for their performance. There's one more essential to win, and it comes out of the last portion. It's Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. 
And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What Paul's saying is, I'm not going to try to convince you. I'm going to let God do that, right? Only let us hold true to what we have attained. See, in the race, there are rules. And it requires discipline. To run the race requires discipline. Paul used this analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. That's what he says. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. You know what self-control is? It's discipline. And I should have said self-control, but it didn't. The alliteration would have messed up. D-D-D-D-D-S. All right? And so discipline, it's self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we don't run a race for a perishable wreath. That's what Paul's saying. We run a race to receive a prize that is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be taken from us. It is, it is ours. And so I do not run aimlessly, Paul says. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline myself. I dis- and I practice what I preach. That's what he's saying. I practice what I preach. Then he wrote to Timothy, this is what he said in 2 Timothy, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know what he's implying is that there are judges in these races. And by the way, you know who's not the judge? The athlete is not the judge. It really doesn't matter what the athlete thinks. And it doesn't really matter what the crowd thinks. It doesn't matter how loud the crowd cheers or doesn't cheer. It doesn't matter what the crowd thinks. It only matters ultimately what the judge thinks. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right now, today, he's there. There are plenty of people that we know who have started the race and quit. There's others who have run the race, but they cheated. And there's those who couldn't let the past go and they couldn't keep moving forward. Could you imagine for a minute that you're running a race? It's the Christian life. And every single day, if you are a Jesus-believing disciple, follower of Jesus, you're a Christian. Every day, you start running a new race a new day of the Christian life, looking toward Jesus. Can you imagine how exciting it will be when Jesus returns or when I go, whichever may come first, but to stand before the judge and to be given our imperishable crown that lasts forever. See, this is what motivated Paul. This is what drove Paul. Not rules, not laws, not obligation, not tradition. Paul was motivated by the fact that Jesus, the author and perfecter and the founder of our faith, gave up his life on the cross. And he looked towards Jesus as the prize. And he ran with determination and he ran with discipline and he ran with devotion. He ran. He was motivated, and we should be motivated too. I told you you have to get done with chapter 3, and i got two minutes to do it. Listen to this. 
Brothers, join in imitating me. That's what Paul says. He's not saying, I figured it out, I'm perfect, right? He just said he wasn't. But what he's saying is, I'm ahead in the race. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a race setter. I'm a pace setter. And so follow me. Follow me, because I know that I'm committed to go in the right direction. He says this, And keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies. They're on this race and they're trying to knock you down. They're trying to push you over. They're trying to distract you. They're trying to tell you that your past is too bad. There's enemies who keep you from running. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But this is what he says. But... Our citizenship is where? Heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to be subject all things to Himself. Here's where I get to be real with you about what God's doing in my life. I was reading this and studying it and thinking about it. This is what I realized. Paul really, truly lived his life because he believed that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. And when we read these verses like, I press on, I push forward. I mean, you can almost imagine some Rocky movie on steroids, right? Just pushing through every obstacle and pushing through every forest and just trying to get to the prize. Can you feel it? And not many of us are like, oh yeah, I'm going to go live for Jesus like that. Because what I've realized is I know in my head Jesus is coming back. I know. I know. As a matter of fact, I tell people that when it comes to church things and theology and doctrine and all that kind of stuff, there's a few things I put in my fighting hand, my closed fist hand, and there's a lot of things I put in my open hand. A lot of things that I put in my open hand. But one of the things in my closed hand is I know Jesus is coming back again. How? That's in the open hand. And if you think you figured it out, I don't want to hear about it because Jesus said nobody would figure it out. I'm just saying. And my hunch is you're probably wrong because I'm probably wrong. But the fact that he is coming back is in my closed hand. I know it here. I know it. But I don't think I always know it here. You know how I know I don't know it here? Paul believed it so much that he said this. It's better for a man not to marry. How many of you are married? Paul would say, you don't believe that he's coming back then. And I'm serious. That's why he wrote that. We often think, well, why did he tell us not to get married? Because he said, you don't have time. Jesus is coming back and there is a race to be run and you need determination and devotion and commitment. You need to be, you need to be focused and being married is going to distract you from running the race in your lane to get to the prize because he's getting ready to come back. So don't get married. So do I really believe it? Now, I, I know I'm going to the extreme. This is where I told you I'm going to the crazy, all right? I get it. But man, if I really believed it, wouldn't my life be different? Would my race be a little bit more intense? Would there be a fire in me that would be unstoppable?
Would I be distracted with the things that bog us down in the daily life as a Christian? Here's what I know. If my citizenship is in heaven, then my name is written down in the books. Yes, there are books. Read Revelation 19, 20, and 21. There is a book, and it's a judgment book, and the book is our, our deeds. It's what we've done, what we didn't do, what we should have done, and there's an enemy there saying they're not qualified, they're not qualified. Look at this, look at that. But then you've got Jesus there who says, time out. Let me check the book. So we got the book, but we got the book. And when our names are written in the citizenship in heaven, our names are in that book. It, that's the reality. And if our names are in the book, then there are some expectations in our race running and how we run the race. For example, we speak a different language. When we're citizens of heaven, our language is different. Have you ever read what Matthew 12 says? It says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its Right? You brood of vipers, he says. He's talking to the Pharisees. That was a really bad, extreme... <laughs> How can you speak good when you are evil for out of the abundance of the heart what speaks? The mouth. When we are citizens of heaven, what we speak and what we do is different. It's different. It's different. When our books are written in the book in heaven and our citizenship is in heaven, we speak a different language. But we also imitate Jesus. That's what we do. We don't imitate each other. We don't imitate me. We don't imitate you. We imitate Jesus. We try to model our life after the life of Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we have to understand who he is. We have to understand that when he said, hey, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery. He says things like, hey, somebody owes you a debt, forgive the debt. As a matter of fact, take your outer garment off and give it to him too. Jesus says, hey, if you see somebody hungry, give them something to eat. And if you see them thirsty, give them something. And if you see them naked, like, like Jesus says, Here, here's the deal. Here, here's the deal. We imitate who? Jesus. Sometimes we imitate a lot of other things than we do. Jesus. Finally, you know what else we're committed to? We're committed to Jesus' mission. You know what his mission was? To reach the world, every heart, every soul, with the truth of the cross. He wants one big book with a lot of names in it. That's his mission. Is it mine? Do I really live my life as if my citizenship is not here? That's the question for all of us to ask. Let's pray. God, thank you for using Paul's words to challenge us. I thank you so much that we get to pause, we get to evaluate our own lives and God, as I have evaluated my life, I realize that sometimes I don't live with the devotion and the commitment and the drive and the determination in this Christian life that I think you'd like me to live. And God, sometimes the past holds me back. And sometimes I'm distracted by the things around me.
Sometimes, God, frankly, I just am tired of running sometimes. But I am motivated by Paul's words to run and to run with determination and to fight through whatever I might need to fight through to get to that prize, the prize that is high. It's a high calling. It's upward. It's, it's your call for my life. And so I want to run the race in my lane to the best of my ability. And God, I need your help. I need your power. I need your strength. I need, I need you to be so clear in my vision that, that nothing stops me. My prayer, God, is that all of us would be committed to running the race, this Christian life, like your son did, making this place as much like heaven as we possibly can, awaiting for the perfection of your return. In Jesus' name, amen.